Hi. Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb and I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today's topic is going to be an interesting one. One that's been debated over the years. Just a lot of things really debated about it. And uh, it's going to be the incarnate word. The incarnate Ooh. word. What, what, what? Incarnate word? Incarnate? What? <laughs> what does that even mean? What, what, what are the, the word? Whose words? What's going on here? So, Father Daryl, could you please tell us, what, what are we talking about when we say the incarnate word? The incarnate word. Yes. So, Lord Jesus, would you help us? Because how can we talk about you without you showing us? The incarnate word is a reference to, theologically, the hypostatic union is another way to, to kind of to phrase this. But the incarnate word, so the word, the logos, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's John 1, 1, and then John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. So when we're talking about the incarnate word, we're talking about God the Son becoming human, and we call him Jesus of Nazareth, fully God fully man. Today, still, like ascended and glorified, right now there's a man sitting on a throne in heaven who's the son of David. It's just, it's a it's a it's a very cosmically reorienti- reorienting idea that in heaven is a man and his ethnic distinction as a Jew, son of David, son of Mary, is in heaven. So you're telling me Jesus isn't just some like big ball of orb no, around. that's right. He's not. He's not, he's not a dis. He's not a dis, uh, An ambiguous glowing ball of light. Yeah, that's that's not him. I think it's just you know most people kind of don't think about it. At least I never really thought about it. In my mind, I even picture it like you know. I don't know if it's from those old school. I forget who made them, but it was like the old school cartoons where it's yeah. Jesus, where he's just like, come on, and he just starts floating up in the sky. Right. Or like I have that in my mind, but I'm like, he still is that way though. Like it, it's not like when he went beyond the clouds, he just changed. It's right, the right. same thing. The, the the spiritual body doesn't mean ghostly body. Right. When Paul says his body is spiritual, he's not saying he's not he's he's not saying he's immaterial. He's saying that the principle of life, so to speak, is not the is not the the flesh as we know it, but it's now glorified. It's a spiritual body, but it's still very physical. It's his body, as a matter of fact. The same one that died is the one that rose. But this is where the incarnate word, the one of the, why why we would use this phrase is because we're not emphasizing particularly his death and resurrection and ascension. We're emphasizing the sum total of the incarnation that begins with the Annunciation when Gabriel appears to the Blessed Virgin Mary, so that his humiliation as a human, when God condescends at the very beginning, is when he sets aside his prerogatives of deity. And is born, is formed in, in her womb and then born a helpless baby. Like that whole process. And now, obviously, there's the gloriousness of it. But the incarnation itself is the word becoming flesh. And then the necessary consequence is the establishment of the church. Because the church is still very really and truly his mystical body. I think that um, that might help some of our listeners when we talk about the body of Christ. Scripturally, New Testament, scripturally speaking, you've got three different ways the term is used. One is a reference to the Eucharist. That's the body of Christ. The, the, another way is the church. That's the body of Christ. And both of those are mystically true. They are realities. They're ontological realities, meaning they're things that are true about being in essence. So it doesn't matter what your observation is, as important as that is. 
but there, it's the emphasis on the reality itself. The ontology changed. And the third use for the body of Christ is like his Marian body, like the physical body he has as Jesus of Nazareth. So you got those three different categories or ways the phrases are, that phrase is used in scripture that is good for people to, to chew on. And I guess today we're going to be talking, when we discuss the incarnate word, it's more expressed on the one where it's the actual Marian body. Or are yeah, they all kind of so considered the, right because that's that's how he doesn't he as he is right now the head of his like he is physically the Jesus of Jesus of Nazareth in heaven incarnate Word but you cannot separate him from the church right now this is this is a really hard pill to swallow for some people you cannot divide the head from the body the church isn't headless and Christ isn't bodiless. And so when you tell, talk about the sum total of the incarnate word, we have to spend time talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the man. But everything that we would say about Jesus of Nazareth, the man, is principally true of the body. This is one of the big emphases in the New Testament in Paul's letters. He emphasizes how we go around carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in you. So the principle of death and resurrection that was once for all upon the cross is still working itself out through the body of Christ, which is sacramentally visible in the Eucharist, but then in things like martyrdom or miracles, because martyrdom and miracles are both things that are integral to Jesus of Nazareth's identity as the Messiah, as, as the God man, but they're also very, very much the two different aspects of what it is to be the church. So yes, yes and no, and everything else in between. <laughs> yeah, because it all still kind of applies. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. When I think, well, usually when I get the two, when I get words, I look at them sometimes and I think about them. But yeah, when I view the word, like the phrase, the incarnate word, mm -hmm. and it's like if I was just staring at that, I I would relate to other things too. Like incarnate, obviously not. This isn't Christ, but incarnate evil. You usually hear that phrase, where it's like, right. what does it mean? So the incarnate like the seventies movies on the Antichrist, with Damien and stuff. You guys don't know this. The 70s were a weird time. I try to stay away from the 70s. <laughs> Especially 70s film. Okay. 70s all right. film. Like, what the heck is a spaghetti western? I don't understand. <laughs> okay. No pasta was in those films at all. I was disappointed. I gotcha. All right. Well, moving along. But yeah. <laughs> but the incarnate definitely we got down. That is the flesh and it's the physical. And that's even... Because it's, it's funny when I said at the beginning, it's like people argue about this is even this phrase and they've argued about it for like, what is, what do you mean the incarnate, what do you mean the flesh, you know? The other part I think of is the, the word, like mm -hmm. what is that and what is it expressed as? Like okay. whose word, you know, or yeah. what, what's going on there? Well, the, the, the Greek word logos is a philo philosophical term. It was used by the Stoics. Um, well, they used by many of the Greek philosophers, but the Stoics defined the logos as an ethereal, fiery essence that permeates all of creation and holds it together. Nice. So when you read in Hebrews that he holds all things together by the word of his power, right? So you can see these echoes in, um, in the scripture of these Greek philosophies and how they're taking the Greek philosophies and they're interpreting them, in, interpreting them now in the light of Jesus of Nazareth. So he is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, but he's also the fulfillment of everything else that's true because by him, all things were created and by him, all things will be made new, right? So he's the Logos. The Logos, the, the word also um, is in Hebrew, debar, like word, the word of the Lord came to such and such a prophet. So Logos is the Greek equivalent. So Christ, the Logos, the Word, is the, is the fullness of God's mind. 
the fullness of his uh, of of his essence of his of his of who he is. You know, God from God, light from light, as we say in the creed. Uh, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Now, the the word being begotten is not just a reference to Jesus of Nazareth being supernaturally born of the Virgin. It's also a reference to his eternal relationship to the Father. So the word is eternally begotten. I mean, Origen uh, uses that phrase, and it gets picked up and used in the Creed. It, there's an eternal begottenness, monogenes. There's there's no one like him. He's he's particular from everything else. He's not created. He's eternal. So the logos, the word, is God, but he's also distinct. So we have the oneness of being that an, the ontology is the same, but the distinction of person. And so here is the fullness of God, the Son setting aside divine prerogatives to be human, because how do you fit the ocean into a glass? So he has to set aside divine prerogatives. None of his, none of his nature is lessened or diluted. He's still 100% God, and he, he catches up humanity into that, right? So he's, he catches that. That's the incarnate part. So when we talk about incarnation, a lot of times we think about God stepping down. Well, yes, to an extent, but even more so, it's humanity being caught up. Right and being being fully divinized, Christ is fully divinized as the the last Adam. When he's when he is incarnate, there are two big errors in Christian history. Very early on, the Gnostics uh, and the the Docetists, um, and they were connected to each other, and they basically were saying that Jesus didn't really the word really didn't become human. He just looked like it. You contrast that to the errors about Christ in the past few hundred years. In recent church history, he's not God. He's just a good teacher. That existed in the early church too, but not nearly as prevalent as the other error that he didn't really become human. So you've got those two competing falsehoods about about the incarnate Word, which is crazy because it's literally I don't because especially when you have that phrase, there's only the two ideas that come from it is the fact of this is and I, it's literally the flesh or it's actually the Word of God and the mm -hmm. existence of it, which uh, it's kind of nuts, but. Definitely, when I think of when I hear that word, so that's, I mean, I I didn't know all that stuff about the uh, the uh, logos and everything, yeah. or it's the the more the mystical. Oh man, check out Aristotle, Plato. Check out some of those philosophers and what they have to say about the logos and 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 the New Testament is importing not all of it, but is importing those ideas and then redefining them. Yeah, right. Because I because when I think of it, I automatically think of the uh, you know the verse words in the beginning was the word and the word was with and obviously the word is talking about Christ. Mm -hmm. But then I think of even and I don't know if I'm going far out here. Okay. When I start thinking about it. So tell me if I'm blaspheming. So. <laughs> we'll <laughs> but, run you in. We'll run you in. Thanks. Don't worry. Because when I think of the word automatically, when I think of the words of God, I always think back to the beginning of all creation. How how was existence even started by mm -hmm. a voice? And then I think of the word of God when it comes to the fact of how has God communicated with people. And it's usually through that sense, or it is the word, or he's written. The only time I can think of is like when he's written down, that's commandments. But usually, I mean, there's probably other instances too, but usually it's through speech, the word. Right. But now you have this thing that exists within this time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where it is not just the words of God, but once again becoming created, where it exists now mm -hmm. because of it. Yeah. When and John. It's the wrapping up. Right. When John says, in the beginning was the word, uh, in RK, is in the beginning, right, is the Greek opening lines of Genesis. So when Genesis opens in the Greek translation, so not the Hebrew, the Hebrew is a different language altogether. Right. When that's translated into Greek, in the beginning, in Arche. So John is going back directly to Genesis 1 when he opens his gospel. And then not just those two words, but then thematically, 
in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word, is a more literal rendering. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the darkness could not overcome it. Mm. And you go back to Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void, and God said, let there be light. And so John is paralleling creation itself to say, as I just mentioned with the, the way we pray in the liturgy, by him all things were created, and by him all things were made new. So he is genuinely the incarnation of God the Son. He is the, the Word itself made flesh, which is why he's the perfect radiance right. of who he is, of who God is, not just a, a bad facsimile. Right. Because I always draw to the, it's the necessity of it, like the necessity of Christ when you think of it in that way, because you have that essence of like the word of God, like the word, which was God, because I think an Old Testament uh, way of like, how would God interact even with us on earth or just people, you know, and it's usually through speech or showing through different signs like that. But now this is the interaction where it is fully physical. Like what, what more do you need for the proof of the realness right. of God? And then later on, we get more because we start to bring back from the physical because that's how we mainly were. And it's not we're abandoning the physical at all because obviously Christ isn't floating around as an orb you right. know, in heaven. Mm -hmm. But then we start to kick off more to the spiritual. But it's not really because it's like when Paul talks about even the fact of if you want to find the spiritual, like you want to find that spiritual, you go to the commandments, like you go to the law. Right. There's spirit, like that's how it's done. And it's not really necessarily say like, oh, now these... These words mean something more now. No, no it's just for the revelation. It's, it's tr trying to show you the connection between, like, these things were spiritual in that sense, but it's like now you kind of get to see it more now. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. The word law, right? Nomos in Greek, but in the Hebrew, it's Torah. Okay. The Torah is the yeah. law. But you can also render that instruction. Mm. So Christ is the law with flesh. Grace and truth came through Christ. Right, the law comes from Moses, the instruction, but the but as bare commandments, but grace and truth is the the sum is the telos, another Greek term, philosophical term that used by Aristotle. Paul uses Christ is the telos of the law. So those bare commandments that are types and shadows are pointing towards the fuller development and understanding okay. of, that we see in Christ. And I, and I don't think we can. In the middle of that, I don't think that we can underestimate really what is being said about what is physical and what is real, because you used that he's becoming physical, so he's becoming real. But yeah. as we've already spoken of the Gnostics, they're saying, well, that's impossible because matter is bad. Right. But we don't. that's not what we see in the narrative. But it's definitely not what we see in Genesis 1. What we see in Genesis 1 is that he creates, that God creates everything and says that it's good. Right. And then we see the fall begins to degrade that. But then what do we see Jesus coming in and doing by becoming like, like he's not immaterial. Like he's not this, like when he's a man, he's not just like this ghost. Right. That's he's, all emphasis with the resurrection, right? He, yeah. He's, yeah. he's, he's physical. And so what is he saying? If, if, if that, whereas obviously there's limitations we talked about, you know, an aspect of emptying what exactly that looks like, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate with that. But at the same time, what's it saying about what is physical? That if he if he became man, like flesh, like not just the appearance of man, not just, oh, that's very, like he is 100% man and 100% material. I think that says something about the world that we are in and what God is aiming to do, even just in this little thing of he becomes flesh. 
I think it's really good to point out the fact also, as you're saying it, it's because when you look at that, because sometimes people might have something to blame it on. It's like the way that they are when it's fact of the flesh isn't the problem in the situation here. I mean, not, I mean, there's certain exceptions, you know, with different things, but when you look at that, it's the essence of who you are that's considering and doing these things. The flesh is naturally blaming everything on it. It's not fully, there's something else going on there when you choose to do what you want to do. Well, with the fall, you have brokenness, decay, and death. All of those components are part of material existence now. Right. right. We can't escape them. And Christ, the word becoming flesh, doesn't escape them, but adopts them. So one of the fathers taught, and this became standard teaching amongst the fathers, whatever Jesus didn't assume, whatever the word did not assume, he did not heal. Mm. And so everything that he takes, so like, what is your body but dust? So Christ taking a body, the word taking a body, there is the immediate body that he has, his Marian body, but that's still dust. It's still material. So all of the cosmic order has been caught up in the incarnation. And so the means and method of redemption is by his adoption of the corruption and then him taking it into the grave that he might transfigure even Sheol, Hades, hell itself, so that the afterlife is now a, a, a place that's not of torment, but of blessedness while we await the resurrection. I mean, he has completely altered the entire cosmic arrangement, and that, that's part of that whole kenosis. If, if we emphasize wrongly the emptying of himself, we end up making the errors that, that were being made 100 years ago, that he's setting aside divinity or some quality of it, in it to the extent that he can be wrong. And see, this is, this is where we are today, people negating Jesus' words because, well, he, he was a Jewish man. The Word became a Jewish man who lived in that time and that culture, and so he preached and did what he did with the limitations of, of that era. What? He's fully God. And if his teachings are culturally restrictive and not universally applicable so that God, instead of speaking from the top of Mount Sinai, is now speaking from the Sermon on the Mount in a way that's for all people, we do not have anything that's reliable. Because are the apostles more filled with the Spirit and divine wisdom than the incarnate Word himself? So this is it's very bad, 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 bad. Repeated ad infinitum, bad theology to emphasize kenosis or the self-emptying to mean he's setting aside divine prerogatives that would cause him to do anything out of step with God. It's the catching up of humanity into divinity. That's that's the incarnate side. That's one one aspect. Here's another one. Was Jesus less than Adam? And Adam was made perfect. Christ is not born fallen. He adopts those things, not because he's done anything to receive them, but by adopting them to bear them, to make atonement, to save, to heal, Christus Victor, to redeem. But he has perfect understanding. There's nothing he misunderstands in a simple sense that we have. So he, he gets astonished. He, he gets hungry. He gets tired. He, get, he suffers pain. He, he weeps. He gets filled with anxiety. But these are all, we see that in the garden. He's adopting these things living and experiencing full human life, but his existence as the son of David, the physical man, is as Adam in the garden, but Adam in a world that's fallen without a fallen nature. So even even if, I mean, grant, I mean, grant a, a sliver of that very bad idea that I said you should never entertain. <laughs> even if Jesus set us, sets aside, the word sets aside 
certain prerogatives. He's still not a simple guy like us. He's like Adam before he fell. It's a huge category shift for a lot of people because the cultural water that we swim in and many Christians are, are in when they think about this is still that Jesus was fundamentally a good, a good teacher who was God, but he only understood what they knew about at the time. That's just not... Tell, tell, tell Athanasius that. Tell Augustine that. Tell Gregory of Nicaea or Basil the Great. Tell the ancient fathers this is what was going on when the Word became flesh, that he set aside wisdom and perfect instruction no they might start swinging i think they would santa claus <laughs> santa claus did man santa claus did hit arius in the face so you know watch out what? ninja's got the nunchucks but what's the thing called that we swing the the thurible see they're gonna start swinging oh, that at you man. maybe dork having two of them you know well, i mean and i think we start looking at this and that's why when we look at the like kenosis like what what we think and what we believe it's not the immediate threat that really messes with it we're looking at second third fourth effects of like logical steps later that impact really what we do on a daily basis how we pray how we think how we interpret scripture and you might say oh what's what's the big deal if i think this the 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 big deal is like in that immediate thought no you're right but when you start taking the second third fourth effects from that um, the next logical steps and things that are affected by it. It's like dominoes and it just starts toppling over. If you, exactly, you disconnect the head from the body, disconnect the incarnate word from the church. And now you've got a church that's a, that is free to make its own decisions. And that church that it makes its own decisions, whether it's schism, the creation of new, new denominations, the in, introduction of new innovations and in doctrine and practice, that church is is probably going to attribute what it's doing to some work of the Holy Spirit that's being progressively revealed rather than to the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. Yeah, I mean, even look at it, um, I, I don't think it would be a logical fallacy to say that I— I understand the world differently or maybe even more fully than a random Jewish man, you know, like, so just to do nothing but to shrink him down to that, like, I think that would be a right assumption to say, I know more than him so I can make these decisions better. But that's not what's happening there. Like, the, it, that's the thing about it. Like, we, you look at that and it's like, if you believe that that is what he emptied himself of, that is, like, you're right, that is a logical move to make however you're wrong from step one yeah Yeah. like and that's where a lot of the christian theologians they they don't go that far but they do go so far as to say that he is god restricting his comments to the people who could understand him at the time and being very culturally sensitive the challenge then is that that gets turned around so now what we're saying is that jesus is a misogynist we're saying he's a sexist we're saying that he advocates um forms of patriarchy that are negative and violent towards women and minorities and people who suffer. But <laughs> all of the very horrific ideas that are developed as, as neo-Marxist categories, even though no one uses the name, in the past 130 years are now projected back upon Jesus because he was a man of his time and all of those things in that era were bad. Or, it's not even so much an or as much as it is as a continuation of the same, a continuation of the same idea. The miracles that he does are indicators that he really is a violent social revolutionary who's seeking to topple the Roman government like Spartacus, but he's just not able to pull it off. That's not true either. Yeah, a lot of these don't yeah. even make sense with the text. Yeah, like if you don't like read your Bible, it makes yeah. sense, but if you read it, you know. Yeah, it's like literally, because I'm like, I'm literally thinking of multiple instances where it's the exact opposite. 
this is but this is the take. I mean, that's uh, Schweitzer does this with his the historical Jesus stuff from you know a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Christ was just a young prophet who got the end of the world wrong and thought he was going to bring in the messianic age. <laughs> Because the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith aren't the same, you know. Some Boltman and some of these others get into a lot of that stuff. It's it's just a uh, those are errors that some people feel the need to study. And I guess in some cases, depending upon what your field of of work is, what you do for a living, that's important. I mean, you know, that's good. But a lot of times, the best way to safeguard against error is like bank tellers. How do you train bank tellers to figure out what currency the money is false? By giving them the true, they handle the true money, the currency, so they know what it feels like and how heavy it is. And they get something that's printed on the wrong kind of paper or it's got the wrong kind of ink. You you know the false because you handle with the true so much. And this is why catechesis and proper instruction and discipleship is vital, not just for people going into orders, but people preparing to be baptized. And the incarnate word is central to everything. Without the incarnate word, there is no church. And especially the creeds. I mean, they're answering a lot of it, like especially the uh, the Athanasian Creed. Like the answers, the, the questions that they're answering and the things that they're dealing with are so relevant to even these new ideas because they, they're the same error with a different flavor. You know, that, that's really what they are. It's one of the negative effects of the Reformation's uh, championing of Sola Scriptoros when that gets, gets turned around to an ad fontes approach that goes back to Scripture but dismisses the church that has interpreted that scripture. And it's that second and third and fourth effect. So that now you've got a groups, a generations of scholars for well over a hundred years now who go back and study the Bible, but they don't see it as the word of God. How do they come to the conclusion that it's not the word of God or that Jesus didn't say this or Matthew didn't write that, etc.? It's because they've gone back to source material and treated it distinctly and separately from the church. You can't separate the scripture from the church in the same way that you can't separate the church from Jesus of Nazareth. They're intricately bound together. One one Anglican theologian said a long time ago, and he's right, you never want to do church theology. You don't want to interpret scripture unless you hear the sound of church bells. You've got to keep it all together as a comprehensive whole. Hierarchy within it, but still a comprehensive whole. Yeah, I think it's just necessary even for the fact of reference, because how are you going to know even half the stuff when it's talked about unless you actually, you know, have the perspective of the church? It's like you're going to read the book, but you're not going to look at the people who, you know, their opinions on the people who are actually putting it down, like writing down the words. It's like, how are you going to be able to do that fully? Or why would you do it without? Because then it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Because it's very obvious that there's something, and I don't, I hope I say this correctly, but there is something else that is needed there because you the reason why you even have all these different groups because they could be reading the same book, but they're all getting different interpretations from it, you know? And it's, so it's like, where do you go back to for some truth or some source? Like, how do we have some agreement? The agreement isn't to all to get our ideologies today and try to find a fair compromise. The way we do it is to go back through and to see what was being said originally. Right. Because, I mean... Right. And that's what the Reformation is supposed to be, is not the reforming of something new but returning to the form that was given once for all. Right. There's very different understandings there. So if you think of Reformation as revolution and we're going to go, we're going to create the thing that was lost and we're going to recover it, that's restorationism. It's very different. If you want a, an, an example of restorationism, Mormonism. Mm. The Church of Latter-day Saints is restorationist. They restored prophets. They restored apostles. They restored speaking in tongues. They restored healing prayer. They restored. That's how they look at themselves. They restored angelic visitation. 
and a bunch of other things that we don't want to get into. But that's <laughs> yeah. that's restorationism, and that becomes a driving factor in many American Christian denominations after the Second Great Awakening is restorationism. So we're going to go back because we know what they really meant because you know after John died, the church went into apostasy and, and then into the Dark Ages and had to be recovered through Luther, but Luther didn't go far enough. Now we need restorationism. <laughs> no, 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 no. You need reformation, and every generation needs reformation right. because in every generation the church is growing in a new new facet, not in doctrine, but as as a as a vine going out into other nations and into other strata of society. And the reforming is making sure that that vine is pruned so that it grows properly. So not all growth is good growth. If it's innovative growth, you don't want it. Even if it's effective, you don't want it. Right. You want to stay within what was given once for all to the saints. And this is the effect of the incarnation right now, is that the body of Christ is still growing throughout the world, cosmos. So you, you've got those layers there, and those are important distinctions. Yeah. I, I do think it's really interesting, though, that especially with this topic, because like you're talking about the church growing wide. Like, what are they talking about at every single council? Yeah, it, it it all comes down to who is Jesus. Yeah, like who, like the five W's of Jesus: who, what, when, where, why. Like they don't get into how too much, other than by the Holy Spirit and the yes, Virgin Mary. They yeah. do a little bit. They, you know, <laughs> but so why would we not use what they are saying? Because they're answering, and I realize that. Like, because each council is it's really a different, another generation or uh, a a evolution in thought and asking these questions and then they they bring it to the council and they start making decisions and they start looking at these things why would we do it differently when whether we know it or not our presuppositions as we read the text especially the the pieces about Jesus and and these parts comes from what these men said and what they thought because whether you realize it or not, your theology, even though you think it came from some guy in the 1850s or the 1800s, it's not. Yeah. The, the, the presuppositions made are coming from these creeds, I from these councils. Yeah. I just don't get, sometimes it's, and I never really thought of it fully until like, you know, obviously here, but like, how do you get the idea that you have the information of who Christ is, but then the teachings and everything don't come from there? Because you're not, how do you know who God, oh, it came from the very beginning. We've been passing on the word, but the teachings don't follow along with it. Right. It's like how these go hand in hand. And then when you try to separate one without the other, then how does that work? Because, well, yeah. Yeah. This is the Catholicity of the church, Caleb. This is, there's only one church. Right. So the, you mentioned the councils, Adam, the councils are, have authority because one, they're appealing to scripture and to the previous councils that are in agreement with scripture. And so when you look at the one church, and the teachings, Caleb, that you're mentioning, yeah. the teachings, the practice, the liturgy, everything that the church does has to be resonant with what was given in Scripture that has been the consensus perpetual practice of the entire body. That's what we mean by Catholicity. Christ has only one body. And we talked about the three ways of that body, you know, the Mary and the sacramental and the—we and the, the, talked about that. But there's that one church— and you're not, if you're within the one church, you don't find massive deviations. You'll find innovations that pop up for a couple of generations, maybe a couple hundred years sometimes. And the Lord will either correct it or he'll prune it. So we have that confidence that he's the head of the church. And, and we have to keep those in step. And we cannot go back to the Bible 
alone in a bare sense right and think that by reading it we're going to know and import everything that we think it should mean because even the words themselves being in english have been translated by people who had to go back and study some of this stuff and understand what they were rendering i think it's just one of those things too if like you really think about what it's saying like it's it's one of those situations where I think the like your solo scriptura is one of them. It's like how I mean, all you ask the question is like is it, so the scripture alone. Okay, so what is helping you interpret that? Is the Holy Spirit involved? Yes. When it's it's not scripture alone if you think of it in that sense, right? So obviously something else is being expressed. It's not necessarily the phrase is wrong, but it's the fact of maybe your understanding of the phrase is wrong. Right. Where it's like when I look at a scripture and I may find these things like two ideas that are you know they're contradictory they're not contradicting but they're just agreeing on something that you don't understand yeah and you have to you know go through right. it that that's one of the challenges i know we don't plant we're not talking about sola scriptura uh specifically right. but you have the way that the term's been hijacked for a long time now to mean that i only appeal to scripture to understand things that are right well mm, the church has taught us and we see this in the fathers the church has taught us to to appeal to scripture as our fundamental primary authority that has to govern what we're doing. And what the scripture does not directly address, the church and her wisdom articulates to create consensus for us in. So that is, and that's what the early, the magisterial reformers were doing with sola scriptures. They were saying that there is no pope or council who has equal authority to, buy, to the Bible. It must be proven through God's word as it's been understood by the church historically. Uh, there was a convocation in 1571 in England when they ratified the 39 articles, and that's one of the emphases that they make in that, is that the only things that can be proven by Holy Scripture and that are agreeable with the ancient fathers need to be established and perpetuated and taught in the church. So that's that's something to keep into consideration. And when we're talking about the incarnate word, what has the Scripture clearly said, and how has the church understood that, and what terminology has the church given to ensure that we do not fall into errors on either side of the ditch? Right. Or either side, of the ditch on either side of the road, right? Something like that. <laughs> and like, and this is definitely a subject that, that neither is silent on. Like that's so um, it, it's really a lot of it's being broken down. Big Bird Barney stuff for a long time. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I feel like I mean, it may have felt like a tangent, but like we're kind of went off on. <laughs> but it's kind, it is a necessity though, because it's like when you're talking about these things, when it's when it's the incarnate word. Like, what do you even mean? And that's why even the word when we're because my biggest thing is incarnate. I don't know why, like the whole thing of like the flesh. Like, yeah, I got that. That's that was never really a problem for me. But you know, the word part is the one that always got me because it's like, how does that exist in that sense? Well, this is why when we look at the gospel, it's what one of the reasons that we stand for the gospel reading and have the procession out into the congregation. That yes, all of the Bible is the word of God, but in the gospels, there's a particular revelation of the Word becoming flesh that we highlight liturgically. And so there's the Word speaking, and what Jesus is doing in the Gospels is applicable to the entire cosmos. Right. His words will never fade away, he says. He says, heaven and earth are going to pass away. The law is going to be fulfilled. My words will never fall. So everything that he teaches in the Gospel is never, ever to be judged, augmented, negated, or innovated, but to be obeyed and instruct and, and taught by the church. 
Right. The church can't change what he's done in the gospel. That gospel is what goes to the whole world. It's the gospel that the Spirit uses to convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's that it's that gospel that saves and heals and quickens and empowers, and it's the incarnate words, words, and his actions that are in it, constituting real historical events and what the church is as his body now, awaiting for his second coming. And yeah, I you definitely don't want any deviation off, and that, it's it's something with it too, where it's like. I don't, it, it kicks my mind because I don't know if they're connected fully or not, but it's like, even then, if like you want to see the devil fall, like, what do you do? You don't just go jump around, and do something crazy, or like, you know, start feeling things a lot. You go and you preach the gospel. That's how you see it fall. Like, that's how you see the devil fall. Yeah. It's something about these words and these teachings when they're brought about and they're brought back, it brings change and what, it does what, things like that. When we think about God's judgment, we always go to like economic collapse or armies or, and, and those are, those are fine. We see that in scripture, but the biggest judgment that's the scariest in scripture is when there's no preaching of the word of God, when mm-hmm. the gospel does not go forth, when the false prophets are out giving out their predictions that don't come to pass, when the, the teachers and the priests are out not obeying and distorting the word of God. I mean, look at the, look at the prophets, all the prophets in the old Testament, minor, major, all of them. And this continual perpetual warning that they're always giving out. And Peter comes along and he says, as there were false prophets amongst the people, so there will be false teachers amongst you. And we do, we think because there's a couple few, there's a few morsels of things that are good and we feel kind of encouraged listening to, you know, so many preachers and teachers around, around the world that that, that must be the work of the kingdom. You've got to be more discerning than that. You don't want to get um, critical because if you get too critical, you're not going to listen to anybody. You know, so it's not critical that we're advocating, but you do want to analyze, you do want to listen, and you can't do that properly if you're not sitting at the feet of the Lord in the church soaking up the Scripture. Because again, the incarnate Word isn't just Christ, the embodied man, God-man in heaven, but His presence on the earth in the church. And what does that look like? Well, it goes, goes back to our last two podcasts. The church isn't just a collection of individuals with individual experiences. The church is ontologically the body of Christ right now where his word is heard, his flesh is eaten, his blood is drank, and you become part of that body through baptism. You receive the absolution of your sins through the bishop and the priest's pronouncement and your confession. All of these components are wrapped up into the church. It's not just a meeting place on a Sunday. It is the in present, the church is the presence of the incarnate Christ right now. And this calls for a massive recalibration for a lot of us who think that because we have experiences with the Holy Spirit or because we got a good church that we attend sometimes, that we're fully part of that body. I hope, I hope. But if you take just an average look at statistics in the United States today, it doesn't look like that. In fact, it looks like we need to be between the porch and the altar petitioning petitioning God for mercy, that he would send his word out in power to turn our hearts, to awaken the church. Because when the church is awake, uh, then the nation will move. This isn't just theoretical. This is, this is God's truth through history. And I would say that's one of the big differences between awakening and revival, is awakening is when the church is actively engaged in obedience and a vitality when Christ quickens it. And because the church is now awake, the culture begins to become Christianized, whereas revivals are typically much smaller, and it's the the people in a local congregation or in a particular area that are coming alive to God. It's when revivals ripple out. You know, you go from 
simple evangelism and renewal to cultural transformation. What is that but the the body of Christ being quickened by the head? And that's why we would be interceding. We wouldn't be praying for God to break in and show up and do awesome signs and wonders because we want to see more people contort and fall or whatever, whatever we're looking for. And I'm not trying to downgrade any, any manifestations like that. We're not looking for that. We're looking for the word to have mercy upon the people to quicken his church. And in quickening the church, we'll see those things happen. And yeah, and the other thing that I kind of want to talk about today too with this is the fact that when I notice is because we kind of talked about the necessity of Christ and you definitely see that as the commu- we see the the physical sense because how else is God going to be able to communicate with us you know obviously in different ways but that's one of the ways he does it is through the physical and we've kind of talked about that but even when you see the physical and the more spiritual because I mean it's I hate this I don't want to say it like that because like in my mind I I default to and I don't like I always think I, Old Testament physical New Testament spiritual right. but it's the combination of the the two. And what more do you need than the fact of the incarnate word, which is the con- the connection, and that is what is combining the two worlds of you know the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that connection literally is Christ itself. Yeah. No. I mean, so the spiritual is is not ghostly. That's first, right? We we keep emphasizing that. So when we talk about the new covenant being spiritual, well, there's still material elements com- connected with it because baptism is water, the Eucharist is bread and wine. There are the spiritual qualities, right? Those those ontology connections there we've talked about, the spiritual qualities. The Old Testament is types and shadows. So when the Word of God comes to Moses and he has the vision and he's told to build the tabernacle and to dress the priests and to prepare the sacrifices, or when the Word of God comes to Abraham, Abram, and gives him the, the covenant of circumcision and the promise to bless all the nations, all the way through the Old Testament, prophet after prophet, uh, the temple, David, the Psalms, all of it is types and shadows. The text of Scripture itself, the Old Testament Scripture, all of that is type and shadow that the Word is working to create for the people their ability to see Him when He comes. Now, this isn't a staggering thing that Paul gets into. Paul says that the gods of the age, these elemental spirits, take that very law which was given through the mediation mediation of angels to prepare Israel for the Messiah. They take that law and use it to blind the people that were supposed to see by it the presence of the Messiah and instead being blinded with it cannot see him when he comes. That's the sin of the Pharisees. The Sadducees, it's a staggering idea that the, the enemy, the powers of the age, the elementals, are able to take what is given by divine inspiration that help to help us hear God to blind us to him. And that's where you need that interjection of prophets and apostles whose teaching and preaching and, and um, spiritual giftedness blows apart those, those scales. Right, we we need that insight and revelation. So we see Christ is the he's the hinge, right? He's the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, and then he gives all of that to us as the gospel, as the word incarnate. So we don't have the types and shadows anymore. We have the realities. The sacraments are not types and shadows. They are the very means of grace. Is that where you were looking for? There? Yeah, definitely. Okay, that's my my biggest thing is like. I think of why, you know, why is this done this way? And it's like, I, I can't think of any other way that you would do that. If I was a God, I mean, I'm not trying to say I am. If I was a God, it's like, and I have these things that exist on earth, like physical, like how am I going to communicate with them? How am I going to get these points across? It's like this. And I'm like, that's pretty, 
I mean, I'm not, you know, that's maybe one, maybe God had a few different ideas and he's like, no, let's do this one, I guess. But, <laughs> but my mindset, I think to myself, like, this is, this makes a whole lot of sense. Well, you know, how else maybe, would you do this? I don't know, Caleb. Maybe you can ask the Lord. He could tell you what other ideas he had in mind. <laughs> I, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I, I can't, I can't think of anything else. It all works out pretty well. <laughs> oh, man. The, the thing I, I do really like about this topic, um, is how, f- far-reaching the implications are Mm -hmm. and how it changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we do church. Um, It it, it really does have some really far-reaching implications. And I think especially when we plug this back into our last two podcasts, which were Why Church? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that we really talked about is like, what is happening there? Um, I I was talking to my wife and I'm like, you know, a big theme that you see that is, you know, it's it's not about you. Like, there's so much more that's going on there. So that's why you 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 need to to go to church and actually attend it. And I, I think in some ways that we didn't sell it short, but I think we 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 left out a, a part of that, and that is not just sitting in a pew and participating or watching, uh, you know, the guys in robes or maybe your particular services. Uh, guys in a collar or uh, maybe it's not any of that maybe it's the you know the just the the person in the front like it's not just about sitting there and watching them we we look at this and it's it's about joining in to the ministry into the body because um, i think one of the things about this we're talking about how you know christ can't be separated from his body and what does it look like to be part of that body and i think it's more than just sitting there and watching yes it's being involved the, the participation, so it's not it's attendance for the purpose of participation. You participate in the liturgy because you are Christ's royal priesthood engaged in his heavenly priests, priestly, high priestly work here on the earth as the church when you're gathered for worship. But then when that meeting ends and you go, as we pray, out into the world, you go to be a faithful witness, to witness to love and to serve the Lord. So you go out rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. You, you go out to love and serve the Lord. You go out to, to do the Matthew 25 stuff, uh, to heal, to heal, pray for healing, you know, to clothe uh, the naked and to feed the hungry and to, to share Christ's compassion. You, you go out to do all these good things to lead, to lead the culture through lives of moral integrity and, and uprightness, to write the, some of the great stories. Uh, look at C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien. Look at these guys, the way that they wrote and shaped fantasy fiction for the past 90 years. Yeah. Right. So you go out and you do creative things. You do wonderful things. You do beautiful things. You become, uh, you know, part of the, you become that royal priesthood in the world. And so whether, like we've said, you're running a soup kitchen or you're the CEO of your company that's providing things that benefit humanity, but you're doing it as, as work, you know, that's unto the Lord. All of that is an act of lay ministry. And part of what's happening when you're baptized and you're confirmed is that when you leave the local church meeting and you go back out into the world, you go in the power of the Spirit to do whatever He's called you to do effectually. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a great promise of peace. So if you are, you know, a, a woodworker, if you're a, a house builder, if you're, uh, you know, a, a house, des- a cabinet designer, whatever you go do, you go do in the power of the Spirit, to glorify God, to see change happen in the world. There's great blessing in that. Yeah, and uh, the other thing is, like, we're talking about 
the uh, material nature of Jesus and like what his, his essence is the incarnate word. Um, and you, you really, how does this apply? Well, it applies to every single day of your life because Jesus, like he, he was material. He is glorified material. Right. 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 Like, so that, what that means is that the, the material things and the lives that we live are not pointless. Right. And I hear so many times like, oh, it's all like, it's, it's, Uh, It's all going to be burned in fire. It's all going to be destroyed. Like nothing matters. And I'm like, that is so bleak. I'm like, that sounds terrible. You're right. I got it. Yes. You got it. You got it. Okay. What does the scripture mean when it says that everything's going to be destroyed by fire, that the elements are going to disappear with a fiery roar? What does that mean? The the prophet, John the Baptist, he says um, water. He's talking about the water of baptism. And he says, you will, he's going to, you're going to be baptized with fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. What is the fire? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire? Because Peter picks up that that idea that there's going to be this fiery end to things. That's not the end. That is the descent of the Lord from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet blast of God when the dead of Christ rise. That's when heaven and earth flee from before the face of him who sits on the throne so that the entire cosmos is then recreated. It's not the undoing of beauty. So all of the beauty that we build into our church architecture, and by the way, all religious architecture is prettier than secular Soviet public buildings. <laughs> uh, all, look at the way the government started building buildings in the early 20th century. It is absolutely unimaginative. And religious imagination is always, always magnificent, Christian or not. And obviously, we want to emphasize the Christian here, but... There's always more beauty in religious imagination. How much more in church imagination? And Gothic architecture is distinctly Christian in origin. All of that is a first fruits. No, it's not the kingdom of God come on the earth, but it's the first fruits that the creation itself is going to be redeemed because God is not looking to destroy the material world, but to bring his kingdom to the earth as it is in heaven. And what does that look like as a first fruits? It looks like the healing of bodies. It looks like the education of minds. It looks like the transfigurations of homes and families. And it looks like the building of beautiful architecture for worship and for everything else that we do in life, whether it's our house or the doctor's office. Yeah, and it's and, and none of it is contrary to, to Jesus and who he is and what he came to do as a man. Right. And so I, I think there's something about that helps us be con- not just like we're talking about active lay ministry and being involved in our world. And I if you're presupposition is that that is meaningless or that it's pointless and that nothing matters. Well, one, I'll, I'll be honest with you, that, if that's your presupposition, your life's going to be miserable. <laughs> like, it's going to be terrible because every day you wake up and you go and do something that doesn't matter, if that's your presupposition. Yeah. However, let, let's let's look at this from the other side. Well, if it does matter, then going to your, your jobs actually have purpose. And as Paul alludes to, we're actually kind of, I guess, imperatively speaks, like you can do these things for the glory of God. You end up with a false dichotomy between secular and sacred when you Mm -hmm. adopt that mentality. And the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters are, you know, fill the sea. And how is God doing that? But through the proclamation of the gospel through the church. And if the church is not the most beautiful, if the church is not the most redemptive and redeeming, if the church is not the most gracious, if the church is not holy, 
If the church is not who she is supposed to be as the body of Christ, as the ongoing present reality on the earth of what Jesus of Nazareth is doing in heaven right now, then we're missing the mark. And that's what sin is. And so we, and sometimes that sin is a, a known breaking of commandment. And sometimes it's the uh, sins of, of, you know, uh, omission here. It's the, the improper formation because we're not rightly centered or rooted in the gospel. So we always have to come back to that reforming component that is fundamentally, inextricably, inseparably bound to the incarnate word. My last thought on this is really this. I talk to people all the time and they're like, oh, I, I hate my job or I, I like they're, it's completely kids. Yeah. Yeah. Devoid. But like they're, they, because they've, they've, we've, we've broken up our lives so much. And so I guess one of my words of encouragement, I guess t- today or whenever, whatever day you're listening to this is try changing your perspective. Try, try looking instead of saying this is evil, this is pointless. Try changing the perspective in light of what we, we've spoken of today. And I think that will, and I'm not saying some, you might be working a job where you, you shouldn't be there. Like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not trying to speak into that, but what I am trying to say is try to change your perspective. Just stop trying to separate the sacred in the, in the secular. Stop trying to separate those two and see what a holistic view of this will do to your perspective and your attitude. Look at how mundane Paul's epistles are. He starts in like all of his letters, most of them. The first half is high, lofty, cosmic theology. And the second half is obey your masters, love your wife, submit to your husband, children obey your parents. It's all incredibly eminently practical. So let's give that a very contemporary ring to it. All right, you ready? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ready for that? Okay. Wives, listen to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Are you an employee that works for someone? Be at work on time or early, ready to go. And do go go above, you know, put an extra little bit of help to help out on the job site. Like, they do very practical, mundane things, knowing that those good things are a benefit, one, to your neighbor, and they reflect the quality of Jesus's character. All of it's very practical, very mundane, absolutely unexciting. But those are the things that change the world. I don't think that when Mother Teresa was caring, caring for all the poor in Calcutta that she felt very enthusiastic. As a matter of fact, it was after she had passed on that her personal uh, diary and writings were released. And they realized that this woman always went around feeling absolutely inferior. And you see how the Lord raises somebody up lo- like that and then uses her to create this ministry that cares for so many. We have this very poor notion and we don't realize that most people are genuinely, or not genuinely, are typically sadder off than they actually appear. Most people do not walk around thinking very highly of themselves. The arrogant do, but most people don't <laughs> walk around thinking very high, highly of themselves. And so they think that God thinks low of them as well, and God doesn't love them, and God doesn't care about them. And so then they overly divide the secular and the sacred, and they live in a world that they don't like, and they work at a job they don't like, and they deal with stuff that they don't like, and they don't realize that all of it's the gift of the Lord, and he wants them to rest in his provision and to be thankful that he's given them things that they get to steward and partner with him in. And we can recapture that because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and he's making his presence known now in this constituted body, that one body of Christ that meets all over the world. Yeah, I I think we did a pretty good job today with uh, going over the whole encompassing idea of like the incarnate word and what 
I mean, what it is, you know, that's not too crazy, even though it's a lot of argument, but like, what, what does that mean? Like, how does it relate to us in yeah, general? You're right. I, I think that's yeah. kind of what we really went in today. And I think yeah. that's, I think we did a really good job with it. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you. I wouldn't even call that a 30,000 foot overview of this. I would call it more of like a space station flyby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We got to see the, we could see the Great Wall of China from here, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I heard that was a lie. <laughs> I mean, even when I, even when I was looking at the topic, I'm like, this can. I was like writing down stuff like this, this can is, go. Uh, yeah, this is a semester at seminary. If you really want to delve into the particulars, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, it is. Yes. I, for those who want to study this, I'd recommend a book. Um, it's been out for a long time. It's by a guy named E. L. Maskell, and it's called Christ, the Church, and the Christian. I believe uh, he's an English writer. So the idiom and turn of phrase is not particular to American speech. So to all of our American Appalachian friends, you're going to have to... They spell a bunch of things wrong in that book, too. <laughs> I don't know. Wrong. Like, oh, yeah. use yeah. it. You're, you're, you're going to have to read it a little bit slower. But he, he gets into some of this stuff, even into the Eucharistic connections here. It's worth the time. You know, take a couple months to read it. It's worth the time. Well, I think that's going to do it for us here today. Um, once again, you know, this I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... Adam. And I'm Daryl. And... Have a fun time listening to this. <laughs> Goodbye.